Welcome to episode 422 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have an exhilarating conversation with black working class human rights organizer and strategist, co-founder of Put People First PA, Nijmi Zurinko. And we discuss with Nijmi poverty, the recently introduced third reconstruction resolution. We discuss many of the related ills and challenges we face in society that are connected with poverty. Very insightful, moving, informative conversation on this week's program with Nijmi Zarenko. We have an EW essay titled Wawa, and we share two readings, an excerpt from an article written by the great W.E.B. Du Bois in 1897 for the Atlantic magazine titled Strivings of the Negro People, And we have a piece written for the February 2021 edition of the Sun Magazine's Reader's Right section by Carrie Lee Daniel. And we also have a poem called Pineapple Socks. And of course, all of this will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 422 of Troubadours and Tours.
Chihuahua. The poverty-stricken in my town don't make a sound. They move around the main streets, alleyways, and through the underbrush, no rush. Some have a place to rest that is home. Many more are on an everlasting roam toward a solution. Is poverty the same as being poor? Either way, society is likely to demure at the prospect of truly helping. You and I know the amount of wealth in this world, the truckloads of food that are left to rot instead of being distributed to those of us who have not yet found a way today to purchase enough of the good stuff for healthy living. A student recently told me about an idea he had come to him while working at a Wawa in Philadelphia. He noticed every day there would be thrown away dozens of breakfast sandwiches that hadn't been bought and eaten. He proposed to his manager the notion of taking those sandwiches to a nearby shelter for hungry people to consume. His energy and vision were thwarted by thoughts steeped in economics and inefficient use of time. So jejun. And so the story goes. Despite all of our romantic poetry and thought-provoking prose, we continue to not see how to solve the problem of human inequality and indifference. As we remain complicit with concomitant actions of implicit judgment, shame, and blame. And thus we simply dismiss it, a natural part of life, like the winter wind blowing around debris and a soothing summer rain falling on us for free. Thank you. 
Podcast. Nijmi Zerinko, is that you? It's me. All right. Black working class human rights organizer and strategist, co-founder of Put People First PA, among other things. Nijmi Zerinko, once again on the program, second time around. And uh, you're just coming back from an exciting trip, I understand, uh, talking about Today, we're going to talk a bit about, I think, some of that stuff uh, that you witnessed, in particular, a resolution put before Congress, right? Um, Third Reconstruction, uh, as it were. But first, how's it going? We haven't spoken since, I think, around Thanksgiving 2020. Everything good? Yeah, thank you for having me back. Um, Yes, um, I'm I'm doing well. I'm very grateful. and I'm I'm glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's nice to have you. Uh, I know the crux of what we're going to discuss today has to do with uh, poverty. And um, do you want to give give us a little insight as as to what I uh, referenced regarding that uh, resolution put before Congress? Sure, absolutely. So um, I believe that before we did speak on. The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Um, I've been involved in the build-up to the new Poor People's Campaign. It was originally the last campaign that MLK uh, did at the end of his life before he was assassinated in 1968. Um, We revived the campaign. We reignited the campaign in 2018 after about 10 years of work and preparation for that. We reignited the campaign on the 50th anniversary of the original campaign. And really, the Poor People's Campaign is addressing four interconnected evils of systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, and militarism. And um, 
we relaunched in 2018, and it's been three about three years now. And we've reached a very exciting milestone after organizing in over 40 states for the last three years, really statewide efforts, which are incredible scale of the campaign right now. Um, we've really built power from the bottom up, um, not relying on partisanship, not relying on not focusing on the left or the right, but really focusing on building uh, and developing leaders among the 140 million people in this country who are poor or near poor. And yesterday we announced the introduction of a resolution in Congress, uh, a resolution to end poverty. Uh, and that was announced yesterday, very, very exciting with the, the Progressive Caucus in the House and um, we're going to be lifting that up with actions across the country on June 7th to uh, pressure members of Congress to sign on to this resolution. Yeah, it's it's being touted as, as something uh, akin to the Green New Deal, as as it would affect environmental issues. Right? I mean, it's a big framework. It's a very big framework, correct. It's a very big framework, and I think it's really... Uh, attempting to be a reframe, right, a very significant reframe um, of a number of ways that uh, we've we've come to see issues, one as being separate, right? I think the Poor People's Campaign has been excellent at helping us understand that these are not all separate issues. They're interconnected. You can't talk about environmental justice without talking about systemic racism, without talking about poverty. They're inseparably connected. You can't talk about mass incarceration without talking about racism, poverty, environmental devastation, militarism, right? They're all inter interconnected. So I think there's a reframe around interconnecting these issues and, and dealing with them as a whole agenda, not as just pieces, but as actually an agenda of the poor and dispossessed, the working class in this country, um, and I think there's a reframe or also very importantly around who is poor and how we understand poverty. Um, when we have a poverty measure that's based on a very outdated metric and it's never been updated um, and that severely undercounts uh, what the reality is of this country, which is that 140 million people or you know, nearly 50% of the population are living at at or below 200% of the federal poverty line. We need to update that poverty measure. So I think it's a really significant reframe around that because we need to understand poverty as a structural problem of this economy and not as something that is attributable to individual behaviors, mistakes, pathologies, accidents, or ordained by God. Right, right. And and I think you, you, you make a couple of really profound and important connections uh, regarding, uh, the, you know, the, the general um, injustice and inequality that exists in, in our country and throughout the world, really. Uh, and, and one of the things that I always find interesting is people who consider themselves spiritual, you know, and, and are very connected to, uh, through, you know, a church or, or some other organized form of religion, you know, a synagogue, uh, a mosque, 
the you know what what is goodness and the but still oftentimes not all of course but too many in my view uh, of those folks would look at poverty in the way that you just referenced you know as as an individual uh, choice almost you know um, people not maybe pulling themselves up by their bootstraps so to speak or what have you how do you and I, I know you're kind of your organization is somewhat affiliated with um, spirituality too from my understanding um, you know dr. King certainly was how, how how do you sort of reconcile yourself with that that contradiction among people well, I think that the contradiction, thank you for asking that question. I think the contradiction is the fact that we have the distorted moral narrative of, of Christian nationalism, right? I mean, this is this is the other piece. I'm glad you brought that up because this is the other uh, narrative that holds this system in place and that we're also shifting and also really taking aim at is the co-optation of religion um, by the the class that rules and the state um, that works on its behalf. I mean, that's really what we have. I mean, if we look and we understand religion and we think about spiritual texts, religious texts, and traditions, you know, we've done a tremendous amount to really uncover, unearth, and reframe that the, tra- the Christian tradition is, you know, the Bible talks about poverty and the poor, so many times uh, and in always ways in which the poor are identified with. The poor are actually holy. The poor are revered and appreciated and not uh, reviled. And so it's really more, the contradiction is more about the co-optation of religion by the ruling class and by the state, which is common to, to all eras, right? Wielding this weapon, wielding religion as a weapon, uh, that is actually, you know, the slaveholders had a Bible. They had the slave Bible, right? Mm-hmm. And the slave Bible taught, taught the slaves to be subservient to their masters. But that's not what religion, that's not what the Bible teaches, right? right. And so we um, have done, you know, that is a core part of our work as well, is to shift the distorted moral narrative, because that moral narrative um, is a weapon against the poor, the distorted moral narrative. And we... Uh, but, but we need to unearth and show how that's, that's a process that's, that's happened be, for the sake of power, for the sake of maintaining the status quo, for the sake of oppressing and exploiting uh, poor people. And it's not uh, based actually in our religious traditions and our spiritual traditions. It's just based on uh, the powerful using those traditions against us. So we have reclaimed those traditions in our interests. Great. I appreciate that explanation. And, you know, I'm looking at the, um, the name of this, uh, this resolution, you know, Third Reconstruction. And it, it, I guess it, it has a re- reference to two previous reconstructions, right? Um, uh, do, do you, is that right? Am I, am I understanding that correctly? If this is the yeah, third? Yeah, that's the reference. Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the implication. Yes. Uh, what are what are the other two? Well, the other two um, in this formulation are the first Reconstruction after the end of the Civil War, uh, when the period of actually uh, formerly enslaved p- 
people and poor uh, poor whites actually came together across the South, created new state constitutions. There were more black elected officials, you know, in the South in the period after Reconstruction than there were recently, you know, than there than there are today. I mean, that was a very profound period of history that's often overlooked. Um, it was destroyed, you know, those efforts were destroyed um, when, uh, you know, the through the, the Redeemer movement that kind of took back power for the elites um, in the in the South. But the the period of Reconstruction is a very profound um, period that everyone should really understand and study, as well as the abolition of slavery, that movement. The second Reconstruction that's referred to is, you know, the Civil Rights Movement, which is very different in nature, um, that very different in nature from the first Reconstruction, but is here sort of being named as a second Reconstruction, and then this as a third Reconstruction, which I think, to my mind, is is more in line with the first Reconstruction, which is actually to uh, change the relationship of uh, people to the economy and change the relationship of the majority of people to the predominant form of capital, which is what happened in the first Reconstruction. So I think we're going for something more like that in the third Reconstruction. And and in the context of that pursuit, I I, I know um, I'm pretty certain you uh, are somewhat of a socialist. Uh, I might be wrong, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I am. Uh, how do how do you feel about capitalism? I know you think it's an evil. Um, should we uh, accept the fact that we are a capitalistic society, uh, or should we change it? You know, are we looking to get everybody uh, a fair shake at at the, I guess, the fruits of of the capitalistic society, or should we just change it into a more socialist, communist sort of uh, approach? I think we need to start by deeply understanding the nature of the system that we currently live in. Um, I think this is a a real mistake of many organizing efforts is that they don't uh, dive in and try to deeply understand actually political economy. There's kind of an assumption like, oh, we all know what it is because we live in it and, you know, we, we get it. But but they don't, you know, but folks don't necessarily really study it or understand the nature um, of capitalism as a system and of political economy, and also not that it's not a static, unchanging system. It's also a system that goes through crisis. It's a system that has had different periods of different predominant forms of capital mm-hmm. over time. So there's a lot there, and I think partly because economics and things are, you know, scary. Our educational system is not one that really prepares us to think about these things and we really get hurt a lot through the process of educate formal education. I think a lot of people just would prefer to avoid it, but I think we do have to be disciplined about really understanding it. I think through that understanding comes the realization that, you know, again, as, as we're saying, talking about this reframe, right, that poverty is produced by the system. If you think that poverty is an anomaly and you think that poverty is just a kind of an outlying function or just something that happens by accident and it's not really a feature of capitalism, or if you think that systemic racism is not a feature of capitalism or that militarism isn't a feature 
right? Or environmental devastation isn't a feature of capitalism, but just sort of um, an accident, then you have a different understanding. But that this is why we have to, you know, struggle and, and strive to really understand the nature of the system that we live in. I mean, my primary uh, focus is on thinking about and building toward and, and learning from history how do we actually build human systems that meet human needs. Um, it's not really as much about the labels, but it is about how we structure society and structure the economy to meet human needs. And also, um, what do we have at our disposal to do that right now that we maybe haven't had before in human history? And what can we learn from past processes of real societal change and what can we learn also from other places in the world who, despite very difficult uh, circumstances living in a global capitalist system, are actually trying to create and structure societies to meet human needs. So there's a whole lot, actually, to really learn and to explore. Um, and that's the kind of work that I'm doing in collectivity with others, in the University of the Poor in particular, in organizations across the country that are connected to that effort that I think that everyone really needs to be doing because this is a very um, serious time period and there's possibilities, you know, for real transformational change, but we can't do it if we're being outsmarted every, at every turn uh, by the class that, that's in power, who, which of course wants to maintain their power. Of course. Uh, and, and I appreciate the, the uh, explanation and the insight uh, we're talking to Nijmi Zarenko, black working class human rights organizer and strategist, among other things. And, um, you know, I mean, it's philosophical. When you're talking about capitalism, you're talking about socialism, communism, what, whatever ism, uh, it, it's an economic philosophy. And it's also a sociological, I suppose, philosophy, too. They're, they go hand in hand. Um, and I, you're right, we, we shouldn't get caught, I, I would agree with you, that we shouldn't get caught up in syntax and start arguing over definitions, then we, we, get, our eye, you know, we get our eyes distracted from, from the prize uh, of, of justice and inequality. Uh, though, you know, it, it seems to me people can't get past that, you know, uh, in our society. We, we've seen it over the last four years in stark relief given the very caustic uh, president we had for, for those years uh, and, and then the, the Republican Party, uh, that must be difficult, you know, to, that, men, that mentality, that stubbornness, so to speak, that, that uh, uh, lack of, of desire to, to really talk. Uh, it must be very difficult to, to get anywhere if, if facing that sort of mentality. Um, I think in terms of, of organizing on the ground, you know, I think our experience is that actually men, most majority of people are very open. Um, the majority of people are, especially people who are, are impacted. And we know, I appreciate very much the intervention of, of the Poor People's Campaign, one, one of the biggest, most powerful interventions that they've made is to talk about the 140 million and break that down, not only in terms of percentages of different groupings, but also raw numbers. Because again, we are often, uh, the images and the 
focus of the mainstream media and many institutions really obscures the true nature of who all is really impacted in society. And so, you know, understanding uh, both the disproportionality and the raw numbers of that 140 million is so important. And so when we are among the folks in that, in that 140 million, no matter who they are, what their background is, we generally find that folks are hurting, um, that there's a lot of desire to, to try to find out how to solve problems of housing, healthcare, food, um, you know, debt, criminalization, um, and other, you know, wages, other forms of exploitation, that people are, are very uh, directly upset and affected by these problems, that they really want to try to figure out how to actually fix these problems, that a lot of folks don't have a lot of faith in in the current system as expressed through the political system to solve these problems. Exactly. Um, and so, and so they're, you know, they're completely organizable. Um, if we just do the organizing work um, and not sort of fall into the, uh, the traps that have been set for us, because we know that people are susceptible to, again, the, the media system, which is huge and, and certainly divides people along racial lines, divides people along party lines. And as long as we don't reinforce um, those, divides by knocking doors and just sort of thinking that our goal is to turn people into Democrats, right? Like that's basically, that's a losing proposition. But if your goal is to uh, bring people into a movement and to unite with them on the basis of the places that they're hurting and the places that they want to solve problems and provide a space to help people think about how do we actually organize and fight back and solve those problems collectively, then you can do anything. But if you fall into the those other divides and you just kind of act like you're an ambassador for, um, you know, what is already existing, then that's, that doesn't work, I find. So I think it's, to your, to your point, we, we have had a great deal of success connecting with people, even in a highly charged, difficult environment where there's every, every, every effort being made to pit people against each other and divide people on the basis of political party, on the basis of race, on the basis of geography, on the basis of identity, sexuality, gender, all of that stuff. It's still very possible to bring people together, but you have to bring them together on the terms that actually work for our class and not the terms that are given to us by the ruling class. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, I think trust is a big part of it in a, and lack thereof uh, even though the system is broken, and I, I think a lot of people would agree with that, I, I look at uh, numbers, uh, voter turnout often, not not in the presidential election as of late, but I, just locally we had an election, a uh, primary election. Uh, I mean, you did as well, I'm sure, where you're at. Uh, our, our voter turnout in our city was abysmal. You know, the, a good person won, in my, in my estimation, for mayor, but uh, the, the number of people that went out to vote, was was almost embarrassing, and that speaks volumes to me. That's saying people just don't think it matters, uh, you know, the, or the system, the system is corrupt. It, it it doesn't take care of the, them, and 
And you can't make these, I believe, you can't make these grand changes that the third reconstruction resolution and, uh, and other uh, sorts of um, challenges, that uh, bills that might come up to face the challenges that we have. They can't be done unless we do it on a national level through uh, a national government, in my opinion. I mean, grassroots builds it up and gets the right people in place and makes sure they're, they're focusing on what is, is necessary and they're doing it right, for sure. But you can't coordinate unless it's done at a national level uh, through the system that is our government, I think. Or, or do you think otherwise? I, I very much agree that we need um, very broad, you know, nationwide interventions. Yes, like 100% agree with you. Um, this isn't something that when we're talking about really meeting human needs, like, yes, absolutely, there's, there are you know, local, regional things that can be put in place. But in terms of really changing some of the structures that govern society, yes, we need um, interventions at the national level. And we need to also understand that part of living in capitalism means that our politics, our laws, our courts are all set up to defend the rights of capital. Um, and so, you know, this is why we need a mass movement that certainly does um, participate politically um, and pressure politically, but understand that this is a struggle uh, that goes beyond simply elections. And, um, you know, the Poor People's Campaign has been, I think, very, very wise in understanding that political participation is very important and that we need to be organizing ourselves around an agenda that works for us, not around a person, not around a political figure, not around a political savior or around a, a cult of personality um, or the lesser of two evils, <laughs> but around an agenda that then, you know, we, uh, we use to move people who are in office and also to move ourselves into political participation because when someone is really engaged in an ongoing way in an organization then the question of voting is almost like second nature right it's like oh yeah voting is the least that, that somebody can do it's like the simplest task but if someone isn't already engaged in an organization that's a different ballgame so our challenge is not just to get people to vote it's to get people into organizations Grassroots organizations, uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, uh, you know, NGOs, all of that kind of stuff. I would say, yeah. I mean, I would say grassroots organizations that are really committed and uh, centered around the the kind of constituencies that we're talking about in the Portugal campaign. That grassroots organizations that are doing base building that are built by members, that are actually uniting the class across lines of division, that are building leaders. Um, there are an increasing number of organizations that have, both have been doing this, this kind of organizing and are, are building it, you know, even building new projects, new organizing, you know, through the Poor People's Campaign. And if we are talking about something that isn't necessarily traditional community organizing, it's not traditional trade union organizing. It's really more rooted in 
say the examples of the National Union of Ho the Homeless in the 80s, the way that they organized the National Welfare Rights Union organizing, and the real organizing of the poor and dispossessed by the poor and dispossessed, those examples from history, which are a little bit different than sort of uh, other uh, community, traditional community organizing, but they're, they're very important right now um, in, in this period that we're facing. And um, do you see yourself uh, running for political office at some point to try to change things from inside the system, or do you like it uh, where you are at, at present? Absolutely not. No, I have absolutely no intentions of ever running for office. And if I ever do, I hope someone comes and just smacks me in the face. <laughs> Why is that? I mean, if you, if you haven't gotten the, the gist by now, um, I don't, uh, you know, I, I think that that has its place. And I think that's a site of struggle that can be important as part of a larger process, um, but it's certainly not my uh, focus or, you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe we're going to be able to vote our way to a transformed society. Uh, I don't believe that that's going to happen simply through getting new and better people into the structures that exist um, because, you know, that is, uh, I, I don't. I don't really see that. I don't see any any evidence bearing that out uh, from from my study, from my understanding. Now, of course, I'm not all knowing. Um, I don't know everything. I'm a student, of course. Uh, but based on my understanding thus far, uh, I don't have faith in the concept of we just need to get better people into office, and that is going to be, you know, that's going to be the way. There's nothing that happens without mass movements, absolutely nothing. Um, mass movements are the engine that changes politics and it doesn't, you know, they can, that can change um, who's in office and it can change how people take on stances in office wherever, who, wherever they're coming from, right? It's people that move that are the motor and the engine behind that. So I'm much more interested in um, building, identifying, developing and uniting leaders uh, of organizations and within organizations across the country. Nijmi Zarinko, it's always a pleasure talking with you, and I will certainly be reaching out to you again to be on the program. Thank you for taking time out to talk with me and us. Thank you, Lawrence. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And um, thank you so much for talking to me and, and for all the work that you do. Oh, my honor and pleasure, and it's not nearly as, as uh, much work as you do. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.
from an article written for the Atlantic magazine back in 1897 by the great W.E.B. Du Bois. And the other is from Reader's Right out of the Sun magazine's February 2021 issue. First, the piece by W.E.B. Du Bois. This is titled, Strivings of the Negro People. Between me and the other world, there is an unasked question, unasked by some through feelings of delicacy, by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it. All, nevertheless, flutter around it. They approach me in a half-hesitant sort of way, eye me curiously or compassionately, and then, instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem? They say, I know an excellent colored man in my town, or I fought at Mechanicsville, or do not these southern outrages make your blood boil? At these I smile, or am interested, or reduce the boiling to a simmer, as the occasion might require. The real question, how does it feel to be a problem? I answer seldom a word. And yet, being a problem is a strange experience peculiar even for one who has never been anything else, save perhaps in babyhood and in Europe. It is in the early days of rollicking boyhood that the revelation first burst upon me, all in a day, as it were. I remember well when the shadow swept across me. I was a little thing, away up in the hills of New England, where the dark Housatonic winds between Husak and Taconic to the sea, 
in a wee wooden schoolhouse. Something put it into the boys' and girls' heads to buy gorgeous visiting cards, ten sets of package, and exchange. The exchange was merry, till one girl, a tall newcomer, refused my card, refused it preemptorily with a glance. Then it dawned upon me with a certain suddenness that I was different from the others, or like, mayhap, in heart and life and longing, but shut out from their world by a vast veil. I had thereafter no desire to tear down that veil, to creep through. I held all beyond it in common contempt, and lived above it in a region of blue sky and great wandering shadows. The sky was bluest when I could beat my mates at examination time, or beat them at a foot race, or even beat their stringing heads. Alas, with the years all this fine contempt began to fade, for the world I longed for and all its dazzling opportunities were theirs, not mine. But they should not keep these prizes, I said. Some, all, I would wrest from them. Just how I would do it I could never decide. By reading law, by healing the sick, by telling the wonderful tales that swam in my head, some way. And now a reading of a piece written by Carrie Lee Daniel of Asheville, North Carolina. In 1990, I was laid off for the first time in more than 20 years of working. The U.S. economy was in a downturn, and my company had lost many of its contracts. My partner and I were also days away from closing on our first home. We considered calling the mortgage company to pull out of the sale, but we were too excited, and I was certain I can get another job. So we went through with it. Within a week of moving, I was hired at a consulting firm. The salary was better than at my last job. I had a great boss, and my co-workers were fun and creative. It didn't take long before our dream home became a money pit. The roof needed to be replaced, the dryer stopped working, and the stove died. All of this quickly ate up our savings. A few months later, I arrived at my office to find that federal authorities had shut down the entire operation overnight. The owner was charged with racketeering, and we were all out of a job. Of course, the mortgage payment was still due, so I applied for a position at a credit union. I had everything they were required, except a college degree, so I doctored my resume, adding a four-year degree from a college I attended for only one year. I was sure they would never check to see if it was real. The college didn't even exist anymore. I was hired, and for a few months everything was fine. Then my boss got a call from a friend whose daughter had just graduated. She was looking for a job, and the only way the credit union could hire her was if they let someone go. My boss rechecked my resume and discovered that I'd lied about my degree. I had never been as ashamed as I was the day my boss confronted me. She gave me a choice, resign or be fired. I resigned. That year I lost three jobs, my self-respect, and ultimately that relationship, all because I couldn't wait until the time was right to buy a home.
Socks. My big toe protrudes the blue sock with pineapples. I try to shift the sock around, but over and over again it is found that big toe pokes through the hole and makes me think about how to get the tools together and work to mend. Can you comprehend?
have it, episode 422 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Nijmi Zurinko. I'd also like to thank The Atlantic Magazine, W.E.B. Du Bois, Carrie Lee Daniel, The Sun Magazine, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Middle Kids, Aldous Harding, Roberto Roena, Madison McFerrin, Patty Griffin, Branford Marsalis and Terence Blanchard too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.